<laughs> You're about to see a victim of Al-Anon brutality. You know, he's got an awful big mouth for a man that's already stood me up once this weekend. Jason C., how in the hell do you tolerate this man up here? <laughs> We've been friends a long time. Hello, Nebraska! <laughs> it's really nice. You know, I'd like to start off by thanking the committee for having invited me to share this weekend, and it's a special honor and a privilege to be asked to share on Sunday morning. I hope that what I have to share this morning will not put too many of you in spiritual withdrawal. <laughs> it has been known to do that. But I am a grateful recovering member of Al-Anon, and my name is Mary Pearl. Hi, Hello, everybody. I bring you greetings from the great state of Arkansas, Woo-Pig Suey. <laughs> I understand y'all did fairly well yesterday. Yeah, congratulations. I know we're always terror-struck when we have the opportunity to play Nebraska. <laughs> I'm sure y'all just quiver to the core, too. <laughs> it is a beautiful day today. I did not uh, manage to see the sun rise. That is not my custom. I like sunsets. Um, I'm not an early morning person as a rule. So, you see, I had to get up this morning and give myself time to get the lungs going, to get the mind functioning, and we're only about halfway there, so we'll see what develops. But I am here to share with you my experience, strength, and hope as being a member of the Al-Anon Fellowship. And what I have discovered about myself by working the 12 steps of, that AA so generously allowed us to use. And I love alcoholics. They're all through my life. I didn't know them as such. Now, my grandfather, my grandmother, two aunts and uncle were practicing alcoholics. They're all dead now but two, and they died of alcoholism. I was never around these people too much. I can remember my mother referring to them as those kind of people. My mother was not real thrilled about having come from this alcoholic home, and she suffered a lot of pain and abuse, and she passed on to me the idea of what alcoholism was. Her father was an under-the-bridge wino. What most people think that an alcoholic is that don't know. And so she told me that when he drank, he would get mean, he would hurt you, kill you if he had to for a drink, and to stay away from him. So alcoholics were to be avoided at all costs. Now, this is going to be very important later on, much later on. Now, in my home, I'm the youngest of four children. I'm a change-of-life baby and an Army brat. My father was a 37-year military officer who spent time out here at Fort Omaha back way, way back. And uh, he was an old man when I was born. He retired from the service shortly thereafter. And my father was a very kind, loving, stern individual, but you always knew where you stood with Daddy. And Daddy loved me, and I knew that. On the other hand, there was Mother. <laughs> now, I never did like her much. Um, <laughs> she had all these little thinky rules and regulations, you know. And so Daddy became a good buffer between me and Mother. Because any time I wanted to do something or not do something that she had told me to do or not to do, I'd go to Daddy and he would countermand the order. And I loved it. And I learned to manipulate very, very young. 
my father taught me uh, several things. And I think a lot of times I have heard adult children of alcoholics go into this long dissertation as to why the way they are because they've been affected by their uh, alcoholism and their parents. I think that all children are affected by their parents, whether they be alcoholic or non-alcoholic, because there was no alcoholism in our home. I didn't know what it was to see alcohol until much later. Um, I think I had a fairly normal home, as normal as you can have these days. As, as Phyllis was saying this morning, it was an intact home. I had a mother and a father. Now, my brother and sister were married and gone before I knew what happened because there was that much difference in our ages. But my father taught me many lessons, and these are lessons that we observe. Now, you may not have received the same lesson that I did by making the same observation. My personality was what made me look at things the way it did. It had nothing to do with what was really happening. It was my perception of what was happening. And I can remember uh, in doing a fourth step, God, that was a revealing thing. I hated it. Um, you know, I'd blame people all my life. You see, I wouldn't have been the way I was if it hadn't been the fact that my father died when I was 12 years old and left me with the Wicked Witch of the West. I, I blamed my mother for a lot of things. I blamed my first husband for a lot of things. I blamed school teachers for things. I blamed everybody for everything. I was never responsible for anything, but I was a very responsible person. If it turned out right, you bet you I was responsible. <laughs> and if it went down the tubes, it was not my fault. And this was something I developed very, very young. Now, I know you're going to find it hard to believe, but I had somewhat of an inferiority complex. You see, um, I know you're going to find it hard to believe, but I had a weight problem as a child. <laughs> now, I know today that was not true. You see, it was a birth defect. I wasn't too fat. I was just too damn short. <laughs> so I'm not overweight. I'm under tall. But this caused me a lot of problems in school. You know, there are always those seedy little group of boys that point out to you when you're a chubbette. <laughs> and I did not have a flock of young men beating down my door to take me out. And so I began to feel inferior. I had another thing that happened to me in school. The kids would look at my mother and father and ask me if that was my grandparents. And I began to look at them and see them as different than the other parents because of their age. We, they, we didn't go and do things like a lot of the parents and the kids did when I was growing up. And I began at that point after I went to school to begin to compare my parents to other parents, my life to other lives, my size to other people. And this caused me a lot of discomfort. And as a result, I felt inferior. Now, I don't know what you do when you feel inferior, but I developed a coping mechanism, and it's called superiority better known as arrogant. And I looked at you, and I found you wanting. I was okay. I did this in order to cope. I couldn't stand not being a part of, so I became the center of my own universe. Well, when my father died when I was 12 years of age, I did not know how to cope again because Daddy had protected me all these years. And I, I saw him as the most wonderful, loving person, and at this point I got very angry with God. How dare you take the one person from my life who really loves me, who let me have my way, and leave her? I always felt like God had screwed up, and he took the wrong one. 
And it took me a long time to get over that feeling on the inside. After I came to this program, there was I able to get some insight into this. Anyway, I went on through school. I was an honor graduate, and I, was, I considered myself very, very smart. Actually, I had the gift of a good memory. And I was to misuse this gift that God had given me because, you see, I'm the kind of a person that not only I had the size of, but I had the memory of an elephant. I would never forget what you did to me. Now, I don't get mad. I get even. And I believe in slow, premeditated revenge. <laughs> I'll get you no matter how long it takes. Every dog has his day. And someday when you least expect it, bam! And I'm going to hurt you like you've hurt me, and preferably a hundred times more. And I thrived on this kind of thinking. Well, by the time that I got out of school and was in starting to college, well, a lot of my friends and I had this group of sickies that I led. And the reason that I'm a leader is I don't know how to follow. You know, I'm just one of those kind of people, you either do it my way or we don't go. So I had this little group of sickies that would follow me. And they began to get married on me. And this was very disturbing to me because, you see, I don't fit now. It's hard to lead married people when you're single. So you get married. You just compensate for that. So I ran out, fell in heat, and got married. <laughs> now, I married a Yankee, and he was from Pennsylvania. And I knew it wasn't going to work right from the very beginning. He didn't like cornbreads, greens, and grits. There was just no way we were going to make it. But you see, he promised to do something for me. He promised to take me away from what I was in. And I hated being home so bad that the fear of the known was greater than the fear of the unknown. And so I lurched out and I took a chance. I did that a lot of times in my life and I made a lot of bad decisions. And looking back on this, I don't know that it was such a bad decision because I had to do what I had to do to be where I am here today. And so in that aspect, it was not a bad decision. I didn't think it was such a hot one at the time. Now, this man promised to take me away from home, and boy, did he. He took me to the last outpost of humanity. He took me to Stephenville, Newfoundland. <laughs> I didn't even know there was such a place. When he came in, and we had asked for uh, England and Spain and Germany and France and all these wonderful assignments, and he came in and he said, We're going to Newfoundland. I said, Great! Where is it? And we got out the atlas, and I said, well, it's just this little dinky place off the coast of Canada. That's no big deal, and I really didn't know how big a deal that was until we got there. It was called semi-remote. God forbid you should ever go remote. <laughs> we had snow nine months of the year, and I'd never seen snow like what they had snow. I mean, when you get off the plane and it's up to your butt, you know you're in snow. Now, in Arkansas, we have an inch or so of snow, and I thought that was snow. It wasn't snow. We had 190 inches of snow the first year I was there. I, could, I didn't even know things like that existed, and I didn't like the people. I didn't like where I was at. Now, that's sort of typical of my whole life. Wherever I was at, happiness was over yonder. If I get there, if I be that, what's the matter? You don't understand yonder? <laughs> Honey, my dog knows where yonder is. Anyway, 
happiness and what I wanted was always over there. And if I got it, it was so momentary that it was still over there. Something was still over yonder. And there I was. Well, now I'm going to give you a typical day in the way that uh, my mind works so that you'll see what a good manager and controller that I am. I think it's real. It's uh, a very typical way my mind works. In Newfoundland, it is the land of Christmas trees. Now, down in Arkansas, where I'm from, we have a few pine trees. We do not have the beautiful spruce and what have you growing here like y'all do. We have sycamores and willows and things like that. We don't have things with needles so much. They've got leaves. And I had read in these books, and I always felt like anything I'd ever need to know would be between the pages of a book because I'm an intellectual, don't you know? And I had read these stories about how a typical family will go out and they will cut down their little Christmas tree, bring it back home, decorate it, and everybody's just happy and thrilled. And I said, I'm in the land of Christmas trees. This is what we're going to do. So I enlisted the help of the Newfoundland boys that live next door to me, two of them, and their toboggan and my husband. And we lived at a place called Hillview. We had the view of a mountain. You walk across, you go about up about 18 or 20 steps cut in the ice, and then there's a road where you parked your car up there at the top of the road because if you brought it down, you never got it back up again. And then across the road was this big mountain. And so we went up the mountain to get these trees and with the toboggan and some rope. Now the plan was that we're going to go up there, we're going to cut down a tree, we're going to put it on the toboggan, we're going to tie it on and bring it back down the hill. Now it sounds good. But you see, my mind doesn't stop at something like that. It just goes bip, 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 bip. And while I'm up there, I got this brilliant idea that I knew everything there was to know about a toboggan being from Arkansas. <laughs> and I, when we cut the tree, it didn't look right when they fall over. There's something happens to them. They just don't look right after you cut them down. So we cut several trees, and we were going to take them back to everybody in the apartment complex who had not asked for a tree. And we got all these trees tied on, and there was a small piece of rope left over, and here's where I went Looney Tune. And I said, what we need to do is ride down on top of the trees, and I'll tie me on on the front with that extra piece of rope so I don't fall off. And they followed that. <laughs> well, we started coming down the hill. Now, I'm going to get some information real fast that I didn't have a minute ago, but it's not going to do me much good. And one is, going downhill, you gain lots of speed number two there are no brakes on a toboggan number three there's no steering mechanism on that sucker either here we come well after we went over a couple of dips and some smaller trees they got flung off but not me i'm tied on and pretty soon i see that road coming up and there's cars going back and forth on that road and I went zipping right between those cars, bip, 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 right down those eye steps and through the bottom of my house. <laughs> well, my landlady came running out and she didn't know if it was a sonic boom, the bomb had dropped or what. You know, it makes quite a noise. I'm up to my head under the house. And she says, what are you after doing, you crazy Yankee bitch? And I looked at her and I, from the other and I said, don't you call me no Yankee. That just upset me no end, so you can see I do real well on the thinking. Well, I got bored while I was overseas. I got bored, and I found it necessary to ruin my marriage. I got so bored. And then I came back home. And we decided we'd try it one more time, and that lasted a uh, period of a few weeks. 
And then we separated. Well, now I found me an alcoholic. I knew he was an alcoholic. Because, you see, this boy that lived across the street from me, every time he'd go out to drink, he'd get drunk, he'd be mean, come home, beat up his wife, and I knew he was one of them because he fit the pattern. Now, I didn't realize what a pattern I was going to establish with that kind of thinking because I, too, am one of those that if I think about something long enough, I'm liable to act upon it. And that still works even today. So I better keep my thinking positive. But back then... I got to looking at that guy, and that really irritated me that he'd come in and beat that poor little old girl up. And she was pregnant. And the night that she went into labor, he'd come in drunk, and he had brutally beaten her. And she came over to the house and wanted to know if I'd take her to the hospital. And I said, sure. So off we went over to her house to pack her little bag to go, and I saw him laying on that bed, passed out, with a little smirk on his face. And something came over me, and it said, you know, somebody ought to whip that sucker. I'm somebody. <laughs> so I tied that man up in his bed sheets. I took a slat out of his bed, and I beat the fool out of him. <laughs> this was the preview of coming attractions <laughs> on how I was to deal with alcoholism. Now, during this period of time, I had a, what I called my hippie stage. Uh, I had missed somehow my teeny bopper years fighting with Mother, and uh, so I decided now that I was free and I was 21 and I could do anything that I wanted to and that I was going to, and I did. And you know, that's bad when you're allowed to do everything you want to do. And so I had a pretty wild lifestyle there for quite some time. And it was during this period of time that I decided I better shape myself up and drop a few pounds. So I dropped 100 and something pounds and uh, got me a pair of stretch pants stretch boots and the hot pants, remember those little short hot pants? And I went out to get the world. And I joined the neighborhood softball team. Now, it was a mixed team and different ages and sexes, and we just had a big time. And it was our custom after a game that we'd go back over to somebody's house and we'd talk about our game and our strategy for our next game. And that was how it was going to be. Well, it was everybody's time to come to my house. And there was a boy on our team who was underage. He was 18, and he got drunk because, naturally, alcohol... Social drinking was a part of my life. And I forgot to give you all my sobriety day, August 3rd, 1942. I haven't found it necessary to take in a drink. I have, but I didn't find it necessary. <laughs> and the reason I say that, you know, the non-alcoholic really doesn't find it necessary to take a drink. But I'm being a little facetious about that. But anyway, so we were all over there, and like I say, he got drunk. So I decided it would be a noble thing for me to do would be to take him home so he wouldn't get picked up by the law. Now, the truth of the matter was the sheriff had been to my house several times and raided some things, and I just didn't want to have to make another explanation as to where this boy got his booze if he got picked up. So, you know, we're always like a cat covering up, and that's what I was doing. <laughs> so I took him over at home. Well, now, it was like in the wee hours of the morning, and he had bought this china tea set for his mother for Mother's Day. And so here I am in the middle of the night, walking in a strange house with a drunken 18-year-old kid carrying a china tea set, your everyday thing. <laughs> and he flips the light on in his bedroom, and there's a man laying on the bed with nothing but his underwear on, and he looks up and says, Hot damn little brother, you brought us abroad home. <laughs> and I said, Not tonight, fella. That's my husband. Now, you can see I'm a prize before alcoholism strikes, can't you? Well, now, 
J.D. was an alcoholic. I didn't know what an alcoholic was. I knew what I thought it was, but he didn't fit the pattern. And his mother told me, she says, now, Mary, Jim has a slight drinking problem. But all he needs is the love of a good woman. Here I am. <laughs> and so the problem came to my house. You see, he'd been living at home with his mother. That old broad, I had a resentment about her for a long time, getting him out of the house like that. Well, you see, he needed somebody to take care of him, and I needed to be needed. So you would think it would be a perfect match. But the more he needed to be needed and the more things that I did for him, the more I resented doing those things for him that I needed to be needed. Now, that won't make any sense to an alcoholic, but I'll tell you what, it'll, it'll ring a bell with an owl nod. <laughs> well, moving right along, alcoholism does that, you know. Things begin to go weird in our house. He began to leave and forget where he lived. And I can remember the very moment that my obsession to control alcoholism happened in looking back. He left. We had an argument. He left for a cup of coffee and was gone for three days. Now, I don't know if he went to see Juan Valdez in Colombia for the beans, what, but he was gone for three days. And when he came in, he acted like he'd only been gone ten minutes. And in an hour, he had convinced me it was true. But fear came during those three days. Where is he at? Who is he with? What is he doing? I've called the jails, the hospitals, everyone we knew. I was going completely lickety-slick crazy and didn't know it. But this was when I realized there was something going to be done about this, and I was going to do it. Because if you set your mind to it, you can do anything. You know, God helps those who help themselves. Well, you know, that statement nearly killed me. Because I think God helps those who ask for help. And as long as I can do it myself, I'm never going to ask God to do it for me. So I was going to take care of alcoholism. Well, I set off on my little journey to do that. And one of the typical incidents along about this period of time was J.D. gets cravings flung upon him for things. And he wanted a metal storage building. He just had to have it. And back in those days, I went out and I bought an 8 by 10 storage building for $88. That shows you how long ago that's been. And they delivered it in this great big carton and they put it on the patio where it stayed till the box rotted off. But he had to have it. Now, I don't know about yours, but mine starts a lot of things. Doesn't finish too much, but it starts a lot of things. And this was an annoyance to me, and I went out there and made the observation, if he didn't get the thing put together, I was sending it to the dump and what was left of the box. So he got out there fortified with his little friend, <clears throat> George Dickel, and he decided to put the building together. Now, I went out there, and I don't know about y'all, but the first thing he does is when he opens up anything, he finds that little piece of paper that says directions, wides it up and throws it away. <laughs> Nobody tells him what to do. Well, now, the foreman's out on the job now. <laughs> and she finds that little piece of paper, and she got to looking at it, and she asked him, why are you putting the roof on the floor? Which he doesn't have an answer to. He never has a satisfactory answer. And then I got to notice that he was using a little old screwdriver about two or three inches long. And I said, where are all our tools? 
I don't know. They just get away from me. That is not an acceptable answer. And I said, you realize how much money I've spent on all these tools? Don't you realize this? You're costing us a fortune. And I went into this rage, and I just, gonna fix it, though. So I got in my car, and I drove across two cities to the nearest Sears store, and I cussed him all the way. And when I pulled into there, I was like a tiller the hun come to conquer. Man, I was furious. And I walked into that Sears store, right into the hardware department, and there's a nice man there, and he said, may I help you? And I said, I want a screwdriver! <laughs> They're normal customer. And he said, well, what kind did you want? I don't know! And he said, well, lady, we got a whole wall full of screwdrivers. Give me one of everything! So I left Sears with $138 worth of screwdrivers <laughs> to put an $88 building together. His drinking cost us lots of money. As long about here, my nerves begin to go. We had an old washing machine. It was an old Frigidaire. There's no doubt in my mind that some sick alcoholic invented that to attack an Al-Anon. The agitators go up and down, you know, and they tie your clothes in knots like you don't have enough frustration. I was out there. Where was he at? Who was he with? And my machine had gone off balance. The machine head. <laughs> and I was trying to straighten all these clothes and get them where they would spin. And I reached over, and I had on this old dress that had long ties down the front, and this was out of denim. And in this rearranging the clothes, those ties had inadvertently flipped in. Well, friends, I'm here to tell you wet clothes grab. Because when I punched reset, I went for 16 minutes <laughs> on drip dry. My head was down that agitator. Pain, let me talk to you about pain. I didn't have a tooth in my head that wasn't loose and my jaws were black and blue and it's all his fault! If he'd have been home like he's supposed to be and that wouldn't have happened to me. Well, a lot of craziness happened during that time. We played, I got tickled Phyllis with the bottles. God, we hid bottles. We played hide and seek. He had hide and not seek him. You know, I'm here to tell you, J.D. was never thrown out of a bar. Never once for his conduct. I've been barred from several bars, a pawn shop, uh, just about any place. You see, I would find it necessary to go out and find our car because I knew where our car was. My husband would be there about. And I'd go in, and he'd be very calmly sitting at a table there drinking his little drink with some sweet thing. And I'd find it necessary to walk in, turn the table upside down, slap her fat, flat, throw a drink in his face, and the bouncer would throw me out. But I was only there trying to save my home. You can see that, can't you? They didn't see it either. You know, I get real tickled. They were up here talking, and this weekend we've heard several of the stories where they had really, they were what we call at home, a low-bottom drunk. Well, I'm a low-bottom Al-Anon, you know. I've been to jail, too. Sober! Sober! But I was not sober. I was not sane. I was drunk on emotion from living with an alcoholic. Now, like I say, the character defects that I have, none of them came as a result of living with the alcoholic. They were already there. But boy, did they bloom with alcoholism. Well, I finally issued the famous ultimatum, and I told J.D., I said, you know, you're going to have to get sober. 
or you're going to have to quit drinking because it's driving me crazy. And he said, I don't mean to get drunk. I never set out to get drunk. It just happens. And I said, you're sick. And he said, I know I'm sick. So I got my little boy by the hand. We took him to the doctor. And the doctor told him that he needed to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And J.D. was offended. He said, I'm not an alcoholic. I said, that's right. He's not. <laughs> Denial. Now, I knew that he was a drunk, but he was not an alcoholic. Drunk seemed to have dignity to it. <laughs> so he had some friends that were on this little pill that Otto mentioned last night. They were on antibiotics. So he had asked the doctor for a prescription for antibiotics, and the doctor said, well, now, it won't keep you from drinking. It'll make you sick if you do, but it will not relieve the desire to drink. And he said, well, that's all I need, just a little help. And I loved it. Because, see, I had the prescription in my hand. Don't trust him with nothing. And I got this bottle of pills that I can give him one a day, and he don't have to drink. I loved it. I had found the way to control the alcoholism. So every morning we would have this little scene at home. Now, I've got high blood pressure, an epileptic dog, and J.D.'s on the pill. <laughs> every morning, I am in charge of pill disbursements, and I'm here to tell you everybody got a pill. Now, I can't guarantee you who got what, when or where. <laughs> I've never had a seizure. The dog never had a stroke, and J.D. didn't get drunk, so obviously something was going for us there. But now, the biggest tragedy in my life to this point is going to happen. What have I preached, sang on a daily basis for years? If you'll quit drinking, my life will be okay. He wasn't drinking. My life wasn't okay. And I couldn't understand that. What was the matter? Well, now, I'm not ready to look at me, so it still has to be him. Now, I'll have to admit, living the year of the dry drunk was not a bed of roses because every day he came in and we had a fight. Now, during the active drinking, violence entered our home. You remember my little episode with the guy across the street? Well, we played a little game when J.D. came home. He'd turn the doorknob, and he'd walk in the house, and I'd say, Have you been drinking? And he'd say, Two. And I'd say, You're a liar, and I would hit him. And so I would, I had broken bones, and I'm not, a, I'm not proud to say these things, but I was a husband beater. And J.D., through his guilt, would not lift one hand to defend himself. And so we played the little deal. I was the mother. He was the bad boy. I told him not to drink. He drank. He came home. I whipped him, and it was okay to go back and do it again. And we did this one day at a time. A very, very sick house. Well, now he's not drinking, but I've still got all this rage and violence on the inside. And I don't know what to do with it, so it began to turn inward. And uh, for a while there, I thought about suicide, and then I thought, no, that's not the way I'll do homicide. So I began to think about killing him and putting him out of my misery. It made a lot of sense at the time. And they say when you're going crazy, everything seems rational to you. And if you think you're crazy, chances are you're not. Well, I didn't have one idea there was anything wrong with what I was thinking because every time I'd think about it, it was justifiable homicide. If you knew how I was living, and if you were on that jury, you wouldn't find me guilty, and I knew it. And then I read in the paper where a woman had, and they did. So now I knew I had to think of the perfect way. And this left out some of my favorites. You know, my very favorite was taking an ice pick, stab him in the neck, and watching him drip. I loved it. 
because I had so much hate, I wanted him to know what he was doing to me. Never once did I care what I was doing to him. And I thought about backing him over with a car, and I'd always keep new tires on the back so he'd need leave the tread on his body. I thought that would be cool. And then I, when I got to thinking about the perfect crime, that lets a lot of those little tasty ones out. So one night I'm sitting there, and it hit me. If a drunk were to pass out in the bathtub and drown, who would know? Who would know? And I just sort of file that away. Now, here's this sick thinking, and every day I'm thinking. And a year to the week of the interview, Steady got drunk. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, I gave him the pill. It never dawned on me. He spit them out. Somehow I thought they were like an Alka-Seltzer, that you just put them in, they went, and that was it. Because I wasn't taking them. And so when he came in, it was different this time because, you see, I had been plotting and planning for months. Plotting and planning. And so when J.D. came in the house this day, as he staggered through the door after he had clipped off the hitching post horse, hit the tree, and bounced into the side of the house, I thought at first he had lost control on the ice and snow. But when he poured out of the truck, I'd seen that too many times. And I looked out my picture window at him, and I said, I'll kill that SOB if it's the last thing I ever do. I was so full of hate. And when he came through the door, we didn't go through our little seance, me asking him questions. I just hauled off and hit him. And when I hit him, he lost his balance, and he fell and he hit the coffee table, and it did knock him out. And then I drug his body across our living room, through the hall, into the bathroom. I undressed him. I filled a bathtub full of warm water, and I held him under until the bubbles quit coming. And a voice came to me, not an audible voice, but a voice on the inside that said, Look what you're doing. You can't do this. And I picked him up by the hair of the head, and I said, The hell I can't. Better you went again. Because I was on that fence between sanity and insanity. I wanted him dead, but I didn't want to be a murderer. Because you see, when the voice came back the second time, it said, You're committing murder. First time I heard the word murder. You're taking the life of someone that you claim that you love. And it like to have scared me to death. I jerked him out of that tub. And when I had been in Newfoundland, I worked for the Red Cross. And so I resuscitated him. And I drug him into the bedroom, got him into bed, dried him off. And I got the hair dryer down and dried his hair because I didn't want him to catch cold. I had a lot of trouble with step two when I came, man. Because it didn't seem obvious to me. And then I went in our living room and I sat and I rocked for a number of hours. And I knew I had lost my mind. And that if I told anybody, I would surely be put away for life. And I was horrified. I had become an animal to fight a disease. I didn't know. I knew one thing that night. I cannot stop him from drinking. I accepted that I was powerless over the alcohol. I did not accept I was powerless over the man. But I knew that there was no way that I could keep him away from alcohol. He was so cunning, baffling, and powerful when he came to finding it. Well, it was different for J.D. too. You see, J.D. liked to die in that room. I put him in that room and I shut the door and didn't go back in there for three days. And J.D. had alcoholic poisoning and he hemorrhaged and he liked to die. But I, yeah, I could hear him scream and I could hear him beg for help and I heard him hallucinate. I heard a lot of things, but I wouldn't go back in that room because I still wanted to kill him. So I was more afraid of what I would do to him if I went in there than what was going on in that room.
finally, in a few three or four days after that, I came home from work one day, and J.D. wanted to know if I would call Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, I must be an alcoholic. <laughs> call them yourself. What could a group of drunks do for you that I haven't done? Don't you love it? And he asked me if I would take him to the meeting that night. There was a meeting one hour, six blocks from our house. It had been there all alone, and we never knew. And so I didn't want to go to that meeting, but I took him to that meeting. Now, I was very careful the way I dressed because I didn't want to overdo for you folks. I knew that you would probably be, you know, very pitiful looking. And so I went into that meeting, and I looked around, and I was so sick, they thought I was the alcoholic and he was the Al-Anon. <laughs> and I had never been so insulted in all my life. I didn't want to be in that room. So when I, after I took him home that night, I didn't go back. He didn't ask me to either. But there were several people that began to come by our house, and the one that he picked for a sponsor, I couldn't stand that old guy. He looked worse than my grandpa did when we laid him out. Man, that guy really looked bad. And he was always on to me. You need to go to Al-Anon. You need to go. I don't need anything. He'll just get right over here and do what I tell him to do and mind if the being be all right. But he didn't mind. And you know the worst thing then began to happen. He began to get better. And there's nothing worse than having someone getting better and it's not you. And I'd come in from work and I would say, we have a problem. And he'd say, easy, does it. <laughs> and he'd look at me and say, honey, you got to learn to live and let live. <laughs> I wanted to rip his throat out. You know, I couldn't stand that. It was horrible. And he seemed to be just taking things. And naturally, it's easy for him, too. I'm doing all the worrying over here. Well, I went to Al-Anon finally. You see, J.D., after he got sober, he got fired. Now, he worked on that job drunk for 10 years, and when he got sober, they fired him. And I thought, that was a tacky thing for God to do. Tacky, tacky. And so I marched into Al-Anon like the Queen of Sheba, and I came in and I said, Ladies, I'm here for two purposes. A, how do you keep an alcoholic sober? And B, how do you manage when there's nothing left to manage? And there was a real smart aleck. She said, see, we don't know. <laughs> and I cried. And that was the first tears I had shed in years. Because I thought, surely they had the answer. But they said the two most beautiful words that I think that an Al-Anon can hear. We understand. We understand. And they began to share with me some of the things from their life, and I could recognize they did understand. And then they said something else. We love you. Keep coming back. And I thought, you wouldn't love me if you knew. So I wouldn't tell anybody for a long time anything about me that was personal. I'd tell you what a success I was on my job. I would tell you what a success I was about my material possessions. I would tell you, but I wouldn't tell you anything about me. Thank God that they hang in and they love you till you can learn to love yourself a little bit and can begin to let go of some of the garbage that you're carrying around with you. I got a sponsor. Didn't like her. Now, she was not a mean, sadistic person. I thought she was. 
because she had a standard answer for any time I called. It didn't make any difference what the problem was, how I was feeling. She had one answer that took care of everything. Pray about it. How do you pray about it when you don't know how to pray? And how do you tell her you don't know how to pray when your ego won't let you? So there I was. And then finally one night I heard in an open AA meeting just to say, please in the morning and thank you at night. And I used that for a long time. Because, you see, I had gotten mad at God back when Daddy died. Finally I had to realize I was going to have to forgive God for having done that. Now that may seem sacrilegious to some of you out here, but if I'm holding something against you in my heart, I'll never be able to get close to you. And I knew that in order to get close to God, I was going to have to forgive God for all these things that I had blamed on him all my life. When a lot of the things that happened to me were the natural consequence of my actions, had nothing to do with God getting me. You know, what goes around comes around. And when I would do things that I knew I shouldn't do, then I had to suffer the consequences of those actions. And when I did, I blamed it on God, getting a bad deal, when actually I was just getting my just due. Well, I learned in Al-Anon that I had to accept. That was one of the first things I was going to have to accept, that I was powerless over people, places, things, the alcoholic, alcohol, what have you, that my, my own power is so limited. The only thing I have any power over is what I decide to choose my attitude to be. And that was hard and coming. You know, managing and controlling is such an insidious thing. It's very hard to quit doing all those things you've been doing all your life. And when I got down to that fourth and fifth step, I didn't want to look at that fourth and fifth step. I didn't want to look at that garbage from that past. I didn't want to go back to all those hurts and all those pains and having to accept the responsibility for my actions. I didn't want to have to do that. But I went back and I looked, and it made me sick. It made me sick, and for once I did not blame other people, and I took the blame for what I had done, and I hated me. I couldn't find anything good about me. I think that's the reason it's so important to do that fifth step with someone who's done one, who understands. And I went to this girl. all these things and she helped me to see that I was not an all bad person that I had some character defects but I also had some positive character traits that girl saved me because I thought I was going to die right there when I told her and she said you know Mary Pearl you're not unique you haven't done anything I haven't done or thought about doing she said you're a normal human being and you have been hurt and I hurt me more than anyone else ever hurt me going back to that first step I found that in Al-Anon you know we we all know the golden rule in Al-Anon they gave me a silver rule don't do for others what they need to do for themselves you see I'm a fixer and I'm a helper and I'm a manager and I like people being dependent upon me and I like people needing me but I found that I have to let that person be free so I try not to do for them what they need to do for themselves. And gosh, that's hard to do sometimes. I have not achieved perfection in any area, in case you were wondering. But you know, in the seventh step prayer, it talks about the character defects being re removed enough to refer you to be useful to your higher power. And I do believe that some of the things that I have done and some of the character defects are in that process. 
in that process. The second step for me, I finally had to get it down to, if you do what you've always done, you get what you've always got. That to me was the insanity. The insane acts, the things that I did, those are isolated incidents. That's not a, the big deal. The big deal was thinking that I was going to do it the same way I've always done it and get a different result. Now that's insane. When that thought comes into my mind, this time it's going to be different. Boy, I mean, that's enough to run you to your sponsor in a hurry because that particular feeling kept me sick for a long time. My thinking just wasn't too well. And the third step, I said, I can't turn my will in my life over to God. It's not turning your will in your life over to God. It's to the care of God, to allow God to care for you and to do for you what you can't do for yourself, to turn my will, what I would like to have, and ask God what he would have me do today, this one day. And then realizing the things that happened to me during the course of that day are for my good and for my usefulness. If I haven't walked the walk, I can't talk the talk. So there are going to be problems that I am going to have to encounter, the growth steps that we take. And I found in that fourth step, in order to, for me to have any dominion over my attitude and my actions, I'm going to have to name it and claim it. I have to look at it for what it is, quit, quit denying that it exists, Go ahead and own up to it and say, yes, that's the way I am. And when I recognize that's the way I am, that gives me a desire to change. But as long as I can continue to deny it, I don't have to do anything about it. And I've noticed that too. So many times I have found myself, especially when you were working with other people, be so concentrating on them that you forget about you because it's so much easier to try to work on their things over here than it is to look within and get so busy in the program that you confuse activity with action I've done that on the sixth and seventh step do you realize what you were asking me to do you were asking me to let go of my coping mechanisms for life the way I had been living I had been coping I coped by lying cheating stealing promiscuity whatever that was my way of coping and you're asking me to give up those things how can I do that with your help and God's grace, I've been able to give up a lot of those things one day at a time, one day at a time. Forgiving myself was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. To, give my, to forgive myself for being a rotten kid. To forgive myself for all the things that I did to me that made me feel bad about me. I had to learn to forgive myself. I think that's one of the hardest things and then my sponsor says, who are you? You put yourself above God. You ask and God forgives you immediately. And then you continue to blame yourself. She says, obviously you must love the pain. And I had to take a look at that. I got off on being bad. Did you ever get off on being bad? Tell everybody how bad you can be. and you, It's sort of a negative ego trip. And I had to realize that I had to get out of that that need for attention, even if it was negative attention, and to forgive myself for doing that to me time and time again. In taking a tenth step, I found the things that have the power to hurt me. You know, I found myself making amends over and over and over for the same kind of things, and I realized I kept putting myself back in those same situations time and time again. And I don't know about you, but I like a written inventory. Let's look at it 
and let's see. I don't do it every day like I should, but I do take an inventory whether it's written or not. But I, if I am in a period of uncomfortability, out comes the pen and the paper, and I begin to record the events and see what I'm doing that keeps putting me back into that situation that makes me uncomfortable. You know, the 12 and 12 says, whenever I am disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with me. So I need to look at me and see what is wrong with me. In the 11th step, I basically learn what I need to do for God, not what to tell God do, to do for me. Now, that's the way I used to do it. I'd give God his marching orders and tell him what to do. And now I try not to do that. I ask God, how can I be of service to you today? I love the third step prayer. I take that every day. And I have found some healing for my sick soul in this program. I found healing in humor. I've enjoyed listening to you laugh this morning. Didn't it make you feel good to laugh? It does me too. And I have found that when I ask God for the grace, for the humor, it comes in my life. And it can come in everyday ordinary situations and things that used to create a lot of problems for me because I have a quick temper. And I found that if I can find some humor in the situation, then I don't have to get mad. One Christmas Eve, we had gone over to my husband's mother's home. She had passed away and his brother was living there and we had gone over there to take some Christmas presents. And J.D. was tired, and he said, Honey, why don't you drive? And so I was driving the truck, and they have a real long driveway. And when we pulled in, and we got all the way down to the back, we found out they were not home. So I was backing up, and guess what? I don't back up so hot. Going forward, I go pretty good. Going back, I don't do so hot. And so I got off of the beaten path, and it had rained, and I sunk the axle right up. I mean, you know, just sunk it right up to the frame of the car. And he got out, and he began to tell me what he thought about my driving ability. And he began to go through all of this. And I, finally, I got out of the truck, and I walked around, and I looked at the tire, and I said, Well, I'll be darned. It's still in the mud. That didn't help. I said, Would you like to do something that'll help now? Let's call a wrecker. And you know, he laughed. He laughed. I didn't have to take those things to heart. I didn't have to look at I know my limitations. I don't back up too well. But I had accepted the fact that was okay. But by having a little humor there, it saved us from having a rotten Christmas day the next day. Because, you know, I can get off on something like that for a long time. Sponsorship probably has been one of the neatest things that's ever happened to me in my life. You see, I was unable to have children. And now God's given me babies, babies, babies. He waited until I was old enough and mature enough to know how to take care of a baby. And that is not to do everything for the baby. And let me tell you, babies can make your dreams come true. When I was a child, when I was about, oh, five years old, I went to a livestock show parade. And when I was at the parade, there was a, a high school at home. It was an all-black school back in those days. And the drum majorettes, man, could they strut. I love to watch those black girls strut. And I knew why they did. It was the boots. And if I had a pair of boots, I could walk like that too. And I wanted some of those so bad, I wanted to be a drum majorette. Wasn't built for it even at five. But anyway, my mother did not deem it necessary for me to have those things. And I asked her many, many years later, why didn't I get the boots? We had the money. She said, 
You were such a tomboy, I knew you wouldn't keep them boots clean, I couldn't bear the thought of having to look at dirty boots. And I thought to myself, what a dumb reason not to get a kid something when for years I asked for that for Christmas, and that was all I asked for. But my mother's a very practical lady, and I can understand her thinking today. And I can accept that and love her anyway. It's not that big a deal. And we were sitting one night, it was a group of us, and we were talking about these little childhood dreams. So I was sitting in my living room, Christmas before last, and there was a knock at the door, and in marched this herd of pigeons. And they had this bunch of boxes. And I had never been had a surprise party in my life. And when I opened up that box, there were my drum majorette boots, there was my hat and my baton. Now that may not mean a bunch to y'all, but it sure meant a lot to me. Because you see, they cared enough to make my dream come true. And I couldn't have been any more proud when I was five years old than I was at 40, getting those. And I wore them too, y'all just, <laughs> I mean, you just don't know. Not like that. <laughs> Our marriage has been healed through the love of the people in this program. You taught me how to love and respect my husband again by love and respecting myself. We do not have a perfect marriage. I don't know if there is such a thing, but we can share our feelings and we can share our ups and our downs and we have learned how to be comfortable with one another. J.D., last night I talked to him, and he said, Mama, come home. The boys and I miss you. And I said, you know, that's neat, because I can remember a time when he never wanted to come home, much less see me at home. <laughs> when the little man was talking about meet the devil's sister, I'm sure J.D. had felt that way many times when he came home. <laughs> so I know that I'm going to be welcome when I go back home. And I am looking forward. I have enjoyed myself tremendously being here with you people. But I also know that my first responsibility is to myself and to my family. And I forgot that when I was in Al-Anon. I became Miss Al-Anon, and I was going here doing this, doing that. You know, I was in charge of everything. And uh, Al-Anon couldn't have worked without me, don't you know? And all of a sudden, I realized that when my husband asked me if I would sponsor him, that something was going wrong. <laughs> And I said, what do you mean? And he says, well, in order to get any of your time, I'm going to have to make an appointment. And I thought maybe you would sponsor me like the girls, and then maybe I'd get to see you sometime. And you know, that really hurt. And I looked down deep within, and it was valid. I had taken time for everybody except the ones that I lived with. I had put all of you as being more important than my immediate family. And I have to remember that I am not Miss Alanon and that Alanon is not going to make it or break it based on what I do. I'm not that big a fish, believe me. I have had my relationship with my mother has been restored. That was one of the most difficult, painful things that I went through. You see, after I came in the program, I began to have this fear that my mother would die and there would be these hard feelings between us. So I began to pray and ask God to change my attitude toward my mother and to give within me the desire to be the way I should be in this relationship. You see, I didn't know how to be a daughter. I knew how to be her judge, jury, and executioner. I did not know how to be her daughter. And every time I looked at my mother, I judged her and found her wanting. That's just the way it was. 
So one of the girls suggested one night that I ask God to let me see my mother as he sees her. And I didn't want to do that right off, because that was scary. But one day I was driving over to my mother's, and as I crossed the railroad track, I thought, God, if it be your will, let me see my mother as you see her. Because, you see, I've always seen my mother as a very mean, harsh, uh, vindictive, bitter person. Very judgmental. All those things that I seem to be doing to her. Hmm. I didn't want to be like her, and I became like her. And when I went to my mother's yard that day, she was raking leaves, and she was in her 80s. And I saw her as small, vulnerable, frightened, and lonely. I never saw her as those things before. And I went over to my mother, and I put my arms around her. Now, in our home, there was never any demonstrative love. And my mother immediately stiffened up. You know how some of the newcomers will do sometimes, just stiffen up on you? And I was able to accept that because, you see, I needed to hug her. I needed to hug her. Well, as time went on, I prayed about this relationship. And then I thought, I'm okay. God, you need to work on mother. <laughs> and God worked on me again. That was when he revealed to me what a sick relationship I actually had with my father. The man who told me that the world revolved around what I wanted, he was not giving me values in which I was going to be able to function as an adult. I don't blame him. He loved me. He was doing the best he could. And I truly believe that we do the best we can where we're at. Sometimes it's not very good. But sometimes when we're very, very sick, we're going to do very, very sick things. So I no longer blamed her. And I recognized that my mother's rules and regulations that I rebelled against, those were the principles that I was trying to live by today in this fellowship. And that was a rude awakening. And I didn't know how to tell her. And then one afternoon I had been to the bank and a, the voice came to me and says, go by and see your mother. So I went by. And my mother that day was talking about something that happened when my daddy died. And she said, how do you remember it? And I told her how I remembered it. And it was totally different than how she remembered it. And instead of her taking offense like she normally would do and say, are you calling me a liar? Very defensive lady. She didn't do that. She said, you know, memories may not be accurate. We sometimes remember things like we want to remember them, not as they actually were. So it may be somewhere between what we remember, if it anything. And I thought, gosh, that was profound from mother. And as I sat there and she said, you know, there's something I never could understand. Right after your daddy died, you really became such an ornery kid. And I said, well, I was doing it to get even with you for being alive. And she said, you were. And she says, why? And I said, because you didn't love me. And she says, what do you mean I didn't love you? I gave you a roof over your head. I gave you food to eat and clothes to wear. It was more than I ever had in my home. I gave you all I had. And you know, through the grace of God, I had met some adult children of alcoholics. And I had realized that sometimes in a home like that, there is not a lot of love to share. And my mother had given all she had. And I had been finding her short and blaming her for things that she was not capable of doing. And I accepted my mother as she was that morning. And my mother looked at me and I said, Mother, could you possibly forgive me for all the things that I've done meaning to and not meaning to, that have caused you pain, and what can I do? 
and she looks at me and she says, I love you. I've always loved you. And my mother put her arms around me and held me the first time. God can do miracles in this program if you allow him to work in your life. My relationship with my sister is so much better than it's ever been. My sister always tried to be my mother and she still tries somewhat today because of the difference in our ages. But we can sit down and we can share and she says she doesn't understand you at all but she's grateful to you because she sees the change in my life. My sister qualifies for this program. I just can't. I'm listening to all those that have been sharing this weekend that have tried to get their family members in. Sometimes we just can't. I have a new son. This summer, my husband's son has reunited with his father. We got a first letter in 27 years. And in it he said, I love you, Mary, for loving my dad. That's the biggie at our house, I'll tell you. Because this is the woman that went around screaming, I hate kids because I couldn't have any. And this boy loves me. And I'm just one of God's kids. That's all I want to be. I'm a child of the king. I'm Princess Merck. I'm happy, joyous, and free this morning because of what you so freely gave me. My life is better weaving between my God and me. I do not choose the colors, but he worketh steadily. Oft times in sorrow, sometimes foolish pride, I forget he sees the top while I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll my canvas and explain the reasons why. But the dark threads are as needful in a skillful weaver's hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern God has planned. Thank you for having me.